I'm David French. And I'm Sarah Isger, and together we host the Advisory Opinions Podcast. Kind of a legal nerd thing, David? Legal nerd thing and culture nerd thing, too. Our nerdery knows no bounds. Nerdery squared. So join us and subscribe to Advisory Opinions on Apple, Google, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, or at thedispatch.com. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of The Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and DispatchMedia.com. Uh, go to TheDispatch.com to sign up. The paywall is coming soon. It is a momentous day in Dispatch land, and we want everybody who's a fan of this podcast and everybody who's a fan of The Dispatch to um, scurry under the payroll as quickly as possible before it slams shut. Um, and remember, like Indiana Jones, you should probably grab your hat as well. Um, so this is, oh, and today's episode is brought to you by Hydrant. More about that in a little bit. So this is a, this is a very special episode. And I don't mean like a special episode of Punky Brewster or an after school special where they teach you that if you smoke uh, even the slightest bit of drugs, you'll jump out of your high school chemistry lab window. Um, this is a poignant moment for me because uh, we have someone who's been mentioned many times on this podcast but has never actually appeared. He's something of a super fan of the podcast. And he is literally, not figuratively, the way Joe Biden means literally, my oldest friend in Washington. I came to the, my first job in Washington was at the American Enterprise Institute in, well, I started as an intern in, I think, very late 91 or very early 92. It, it's, it's hazy. I mean, there were dinosaurs roaming the earth back then. Um, and I was brought in on this, this track as an intern to replace one Tevi Troy, who is in our studios at this moment. Tevi, welcome. It is such a thrill to be here, Jonah. I've been listening since the first episode. I even got a mention in the first episode. And as you correctly note, I am a super fan of the excellent conversations you hear, have here on, on The Dispatch and on The Remnant. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, so for background, Tevi was a research assistant for Ben Wattenberg. Um, he wasn't the first link in the great chain of Wattenberg research assistants. That was, I believe, Carl Zinsmeister. Yes, later an assistant to the president in the Bush White House. Right. And then it was you, then me. Then um, a guy named Doug Anderson, who's a close friend of mine, and uh, um, and then don't forget the New York Times is Mark Mazzetti, and then there was the New York Times is Mark Mazzetti, and then there were other people in the orbit who went on to great and wonderful things. But really, you and I are the most important of this entire group. I would have to say, and particularly you, right? Has so, the added advantage of being true. So. Yes, that's right. So Tevi, uh, when he left AI low those many centuries ago, went off to grad school to get a PhD in American studies at the University of Texas, I believe. Correct. I, I should say, shouldn't say I believe. I, <laughs> I kind of did know that. Um, and in that time, you've had a lot of different jobs. You worked for the uh, first and second Bush administrations. You worked for Capitol Hill for, I believe, John Ashcroft. Is that how Correct. I remember it? Yeah. yeah. And Chris Cox. And Chris Cox. That's right. Um, and... Uh, for a very brief period of time, you were an assassin in Guatemala, but we don't talk about that. 
Um, and in your spare time and amongst other and other various and sundry other uh, occupations, you've kind of turned into a presidential historian. And uh, your last book, Shall We Wake the President, was all about presidential crises. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that because of the coronavirus seems kind of in your wheelhouse, right? Part of your one of your jobs was you were the number two guy to HHS in the second second term. Was that the yep, second that's term? Correct. I can keep it straight. Um, I was so drunk back then. Um, but you were at my swearing in ceremony. That's right, I was. And um, at your swearing in ceremony, I discovered that the uniformed what are they called? The public health service. The public the health service division of HHS. That I just always assumed it was the uh, the Surgeon General who wore the the sort of um, Captain Kangaroo outfit, and nobody else. But he. Inf- he or she, in fact, has platoons of highly trained public health service uh, shock troops and stormtroopers working for him, and they all showed up for your thing. It was well, I don't know if all of them were there, <laughs> but they do all show up for disasters, as, as you yeah. were talking about in my last book. They, um, they work for the department by day, and then if there is an emergency, they are deployed to the field to help with coronavirus or hurricanes or whatever public health disasters might befall us. Do they... Um have like cause when I saw them, they were all in their fancy like doorman uniform. Do they have like camo fatigue uniforms, or is it just like the ceremonial only ones? And other than that, they're just in plain clothes. No, they look kind of like uh, navy u- uniforms during the uh-huh. day. So they have their dress whites, and then they have their their day to day jobs. Do jo- they have like works. court marshals and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I assume I would have presided over them if they had any, but uh, I, I don't recall any like that. That would be cool. All right. So, but this is a discursion. But as you know, in this podcast, we do a lot of discursions. Um, and your latest book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Um, I remember when you were thinking about doing this idea a while back, and then you just managed to churn it out while I wasn't looking. Um, and unlike many of the books that we d- discuss on this podcast, I've actually spent a bit of time looking at it. Um, why did you write it? Well, as we discussed in that conversation with you, and I appreciate that every time I do have a book idea, I do run it by you, and you always give me good insights into how to approach it and some things that you've read that I should think about in looking at it. But obviously, there's been a lot of conversation lately about fighting in the White House. In Obama, the narrative was no drama, Obama. They have no fighting. Not exactly true. In this administration, there's obviously talk about fighting and t- staff turnover. And so I decided to look and see if anybody had written something definitive on this. And lo and behold, I found that someone had not done so. Yeah. And therefore, I thought I was the person to step into the breach and, and write this book. And as you laid out earlier, I'm a presidential historian. I worked in the White House. I have decades of looking into this issue. And I found unbelievable stories in this book that I had no idea about. So I think the readers will find new new and exciting stories in this book as well. Yeah. No, uh, just so we can get the, the shameless book promotion stuff, at least on my side of it, Tevi is on his own, um, out of the way. It's really engagingly written. I've been like dipping in and out of various sections um, all weekend. Uh, it's it's extremely accessible, but also deeply informed and um, and a lot of fun to read. You can read it in bits. I think it's got applications for sort of management type people who are interested on the business side, um, political nerd historian types, um, and uh, sort of the general interest reader as well. Um, but I want to start someplace a little weird on this. So our mutual friend, Yuval Levin, who was recently on this podcast, um, he has a book out called uh, A Time to Build, where he makes this argument that I've been sort of trumpeting for a while now, that one of the main drivers of our problems in terms of our political dysfunction and a lot of our social dysfunction is that 
institutions, the people no longer see institutions as things that they submit themselves to, to be formed by, to be, um, uh, to be made a servant of. And instead, we look at institutions as platforms that we can perform on. And you don't explicitly put it in those terms in the book, but that's sort of a theme of the book is that when you have uh, that one of the things that makes these these inside the White House rivalries um, more acute, more pronounced, and more defining of the White House is that you get more and more famous advisors, and they tend to use the White House for their own profile rather than um, subsuming it to the needs of the White House and the institution, the institution of the presidency of itself. So, talk about that evolution from the, the Brownlow Commission forward about how this transformation kind of happens. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And, and I like that connection to Yuval's book. Not only is he a mutual friend, but he worked for me in the White House and was the single smartest person on the staff. And I knew when I would get a whole bunch of stacks of memos that I would read at the end of the day after a long, long day of, of meetings in, in the White House, I put Yuval's memo at the bottom of the stack because I knew when I got to it, it would need no edits and I would be <laughs> done for the night. So Yuval is correct about this issue of institutions. And I actually talked about this a little bit in one of my earlier books on pop culture in the presidency. It was called What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted. And I noted that there were very few shared touchdowns, touchstones in American life anymore. Obviously, religion is more diffuse. Even popular culture, there used to be shows that everybody watched. You know, in, in our day, Happy Days, every, everybody watched it. Everybody talked about it. Now, it's so much more narrow that you have narrow casting to, to find your music, your movies. Everything in your life is narrow casted, and there are no great unifying institutions, except, I argued in that book, the president and the presidency. And now it is, it's a polarizing institution, but it's unifying because if a late night, late night comic makes a joke about the president, everybody understands the reference point, even if they may take different perspectives on the president himself. So th that is one of the few remaining shared institutions we have. But in becoming this shared institution, it also has become more prominent in American life. And I do talk about the rise of the celebrity aid. I showed you as, as I came in this excerpt I have in the Washington Examiner this week about how White House aides were supposed to be found with a passion for anonymity. And that's what came from the Brownlow Commission in 1936, which determined that the president needs help. The government was growing and the government and the, the president couldn't just run it with cabinet secretaries alone. He needed his own aides who reported to him and did his bidding. And so that started in the Roosevelt administration. But Truman is the first president to enter with a White House staff, which is why I start Fight House with Truman. So, I, 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 so you say that. What? Who? Clearly, there was some White House staff in, say, 1900. Who, but it was much smaller, right? I mean, was it was it a non-political, non-professional staff? It was just like the butler, or I mean, was there? S so, so Lincoln, for example, famously ran the Civil War with two aides, two two private secretaries, Nicolay and Hay. And if you wanted policy done or reports written, that was done at the at the cabinet agencies. We look at the musical Hamilton. You see fighting between. Hamilton and Jefferson in the Washington administration, they were both cabinet secretaries. You think even about the Brains Trust in the early Roosevelt years, those guys were not White House staffers. They were staffers at Treasury, Agriculture, and State Department. 
So this whole notion of, the, of, of an actual White House aide and an executive office of the president where you have a press secretary and a national security advisor and a domestic policy advisor, all this starts to develop out of the Brownlow Commission, which called for something called an executive office of the president. It first called for six administrative assistants to the president who should, who, to the president who should have this so-called passion for anonymity. Now, as we were talking about here, the passion for anonymity kind of went out the window in Kennedy and has been going further and further out the window ever since. But the whole idea was the president would have these people who were experts, who were quiet, who were behind the scenes, but were getting stuff done for the president. And that evolution of these White House aides also led to some of the fighting I talk about in White House, because suddenly you may have a national security advisor or even a lower level aide who's advising the president on foreign policy when the secretary of state thinks that he should be in charge of all foreign policy. And so one of the early and great stories I tell in White House is in the Truman administration when there's a big fight about the recognition of the state of Israel, which is amazing to think that that was even a question given what a close ally Israel is of us today. And Truman sets up this argument inside the White House between Clark Clifford, who's a junior White House aide who's arguing in favor of recognizing Israel, and George Marshall, who's the Secretary of State and adamantly opposed to recognizing Israel. And Clifford, who's young but also a very smart and able lawyer, writes a legal brief on the subject, argues vehemently in front of the president, wins the day in a meeting that Truman described later as rough as a cob. <laughs> and then Marshall is so mad, so mad that he loses this argument that he never again speaks to Clifford or utters his name for the rest of his life. Yeah, no, I, I read that part. And there's also that s scene where Marshall sort of has a bold move gotten kind of decision. And he tells the president that if he went with his way, he wouldn't vote for him, <laughs> which is not not great inside of a White House. Yeah. And Marshall is the guy who Truman, and I say this in White House, Truman revered more in public life than anyone else. So Truman really put Marshall on a pedestal, and yet he went against him on the recognition of Israel, and we're all grateful for that because of a very sharp argument made by Clifford, but also Truman's own reading. He was deeply versed in the Bible, and he had read this book called Great Men and Famous Women that talked about Cyrus the Great, who helped bring the Israelites back from Persia after the Babylonian exile to Israel and rebuild the temple. And he was praised at a meeting of, by the Jewish community after the recognition of the state of Israel, and they said he was like Cyrus. And he said, what do you mean? I am Cyrus. I am Cyrus. <laughs> um, interesting that the first mention of Cyrus in a book about this is not Cyrus Vance. Um, but, or, or Cyrus from the Warriors. Uh, or That's right. <laughs> um, so where do you actually – I mean uh, – We'll get more to more anecdotes of dysfunction and mayhem, but philosophically, did we take a wrong turn with the Brownlow Commission? Do you think that maybe if we had stapped up the bureaucracies of the cabinets instead and not turned the executive into what it would become, we would have a we'd be in better shape? It, it was not realistic to continue with the growth of government at its current trajectory and not give the president more help. Uh-huh. You and I probably think that the government should not be as large as it is and involved in as many things that it is. And perhaps if the government had not grown so much in under Roosevelt to deal with a domestic crisis of the Great Depression and a foreign policy crisis in World War II, so if the government had not grown as quickly as it has and as gargantuan it has, perhaps we could have gotten by with this notion of cabinet government, which a couple of presidents claimed they were in favor of, but they didn't actually pursue. So given what we have, I think you need a White House staff, but it could have been otherwise. Um, but you don't think that to a certain extent the the growth of the 
executive bureaucracy has knocked the sort of the intended balance of powers between the various um, branches of government a bit out of whack or no? I mean, look, the president is now the center of government and he is the center for economic and foreign policy decisions in a way that it was not when you had cabinet government. And the executive office of the president, the so-called White House staff, is something like 1,600 people includes the Office of Management and Budget and includes the U.S. Trade Representative and the Drug Czar's Office and National Security Council, it probably doesn't have to be that big. And I could make a case for making it smaller. But I don't think I could make a case for the president having no aides and no assistance that reported directly to him. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. But, you know, uh, our friend uh, Steve Hayward's point that we pronounce the word president wrong and that we should pronounce it president because he's just supposed to be sort of presiding over government, not being um, the the have the whip hand on everything. Uh, I, I, you know, we don't we're not going to talk a lot about Trump on this, but, you know, I worry what a Michael Bloomberg, you know, President Bloomberg or President Sanders could do with the imperial presidency that we have. And um and it just – I don't know that you get the growth of basically the European-style state rather than the American-style government that we've got if you didn't have this um, professionalization of the presidency that we've, we've gotten. But anyway. Yeah, this is actually something I get at in my third book, Shall We Wake the President, about presidents and disasters because in the 19th century – Presidents didn't get involved in disasters and weren't expected to get in disasters and didn't even have the capacity to deal with disasters. Now in the 20th and later in the 21st century, there is now an expectation by the American people that the presidents get involved in this sort of thing. I'm not sure that's a good thing, but But woe woe betide the president who says, you know what, unilaterally, I'm going to step away from disasters. Let's let the governors handle it like they did back in the Harrison administration. It it worked then, but it would be disastrous now. Politically disastrous. Politically disastrous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just pour one out for the Harrison administration. All right. So um, uh, a lot of people are comparing this book to uh, Doris Kurtz Goodwin's Team of Rivals. Um, I get it. Similar theme in some ways, but actually very different books, right? Um, What is the key difference between – I mean, first of all, other than the fact that Goodwin was looking at one administration um, under one president, you know – Explain for people what the difference is between, you know, your angle and her angle and all this. So it's true. She just looks at one administration, the Lincoln administration, and she looks at a bunch of cabinet secretaries who are rivals and see themselves as superior to the president and how the president basically outmaneuvers them but still manages to get great results from them. This book is a little more at the staff level. Sometimes the president's involved in the fights, but sometimes they, I, I say there's kind of a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead aspect of this, where right. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are the aides in, in Hamlet who are off to the side, and then Tom Stopper did a whole play about them and, and their lives. So they're kind of running around the White House, and that's, that's what this book is about, what the people in the White House are doing. The president is involved, and he sets the stage, and he sometimes will weigh in, like Obama does when he doesn't like what people are doing. He'll say, that was quite an email you sent if somebody sent a blistering email. But it's really what's happening at the staff level. Also, from a philosophical point of view, I think my book is really about the continuum of conflict within the White House. There's always going to be conflict. Every single White House I looked at has conflict. But there's a continuum between 
complete dysfunction on one end where people don't trust each other and can't have private conversations and can't get anything done because they're all backstabbing. And then on the other hand, where you have complete groupthink where nobody disagrees and you have what you had in the Johnson administration where the best and the brightest actually couldn't raise questions about the problems of the Vietnam War. And in the Vietnam time, there was even a group of aides at the State Department who wanted to get together and discuss the problems with the Vietnam policy, but they were so scared, they called themselves the (laughs) non-group, and they met privately and secretly so that Johnson wouldn't find out about it. Um, So what, I mean, I think I know what your answer is going to be, and that's why I'm asking. Uh, What would you say was the most dysfunctional White House administration? Our White House team. It's like the newlywed game. I'm going to say Ford. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Um, this this kind of breaks my heart because I, you know, I always thought as, as to AI guys, you know, um, and this is a point that you've made in the past, maybe in another one of your books about how the White House intellectuals and that the people don't remember that the Ford administration actually was had some really great intellectual firepower in it, which kind of contrasts with the image from Saturday Night Live and all of that. Um, but why? So why was the Ford administration so dysfunctional? Well, Ford was a very nice guy. And everybody says, how can this dysfunctional administration be presided over by a nice guy? That's exactly the point. I think he was too nice a guy to control it. And there was one guy in particular whose name was Bob Hartman. And he was an old aide to Ford, was with Ford, knew Ford longer than perhaps any other aide in the administration. And he was just a very sharp-elbowed person. He didn't get the chief of staff job, even though he'd been chief of staff to Ford as vice president, and he was upset about that. He was constantly leaking to the press. He, I talk about in the book in, in Fight House how he kind of sets himself up in the ante room outside the Oval Office and presides over the presidential inbox, pulling out things he doesn't like from the inbox and giving them to Evans and Novak, the political columnists, <laughs> but then also slipping in things he does like that don't go through the staffing process. And his nickname inside the White House was SOB. And he said, cheekily that it stood for sweet old Bob, but it didn't. And we know better and he knew better. <laughs> but that's another, I mean, so like, like, um, you talk a lot about, I mean, it's sort of the, uh, the die marker for white house fights in is often leaking to the press, right? I mean, that's sort of how you know they're happening. Those are the weapons that they use against each other, which sort of gets back to this point about institutions where people are using, I mean, sometimes people are using, these things to win internal fights, and sometimes they're using them to bolster their external reputation or maybe their chances for a higher cabinet position or an office, uh, some other office. Or both. Or both, yeah. So who was the most effective leaker in in the post-FDR? James you know, A. Baker 3D. <laughs> <laughs> Jim Baker was the chief of staff in the first Reagan term. And he had very close relations with with the press. And I actually have a great story in Fight House that he's sitting there having lunch with Leslie Stahl. And he says, oh, I got got to go. And he goes up to the presidential helicopter where Reagan was about to leave. And then he just stands there as Reagan uh, flies away. And then he goes back to Leslie Stahl and she says, what what was that all about? He said, I just wanted them to see I was there. (laughs) uh, and, And they talk about the percentage of time that he spent minding the press or tending to the press. And the interesting contrast with Baker is that he was main rivals with Ed Meese, who was the counselor to the president and someone who knew Reagan for longer and also was more ideologically aligned with And had Reagan. wanted the chief of staff job, right? Wanted the chief of staff job, but he he lost out because he was famously disorganized. And I have a lot of nicknames in this book, including an appendix of all the great White House nicknames. But the only 
item to get a nickname in this entire book is Ed Meese's briefcase, which they said <laughs> things would go in and not come out, and they called it the Meese case, <laughs> <laughs> which, as you know, I know you know a little bit of Yiddish. It's, uh, it's got a double on Tom because Meese also means ugly. Right. So, but, so Baker was leaking to the press all the time and was very good at it, and Meese was unilaterally disarming himself in this fight because he didn't think leaking served the president or the conservative movement or the goals of the presidency and, and Reagan himself. And so while I admire Meese for taking that stance, I think it did hurt him in the reputational wars and internally inside the Reagan administration while Baker was being very effective. So um, let's stay on the Reagan administration for a second because in some ways, like the Reagan administration is partly because of a function of our age um, and our politics, the internal fights of the Reagan administration seem more larger than li- sort of comic booky. you know what I mean? In, the, in that they were sort of the early titans early on in the revolution. So it's, there's a little bit of sort of Danton versus Robespierre kind of feel to it, I guess. Um, but so Baker... Baker was a first-term chief of staff, right? Yep. And he was replaced by a less good chief of staff um, who did not get along too well with um, some of the most important players in any administration. Uh, Why don't you talk about that? So in what I call the worst staff trade in White House history, Baker and Don Regan, who was the Treasury Secretary, decided to swap jobs. And this actually came about as a result of a leak where there was a leak about um, the president's economic policy and Regan accused Baker of leaking and they had this shouting match and then they decided to reconcile over lunch. And over that fateful lunch, they agreed to change jobs in the second term. Uh, it's kind of like one of those sitcoms that you like where they, the actors go for and visit the each visit the other sitcom. Mm-hmm. But So they decide to switch jobs and it really doesn't work out so well because Baker's effective as Treasury Secretary as he was as, uh, as, as Chief of Staff. But Regan really doesn't know Don, uh, Ronald Reagan very well. In fact, one of the reasons he wanted the job was because he wanted to spend more time with Reagan. But Nancy Reagan famously said about him that he's he gets the chief part, but he doesn't really get the of staff part, <laughs> which is a great line. And he is at odds with Nancy Reagan throughout the second term. The second term was more tumultuous, as, as you recall, especially with the Iran-Contra problem. And they have one big fight over the phone in which Don Reagan is so annoyed with Nancy that he hangs up on her. And Jim Baker hears about this, and he says, that's not a firing offense. That's a hanging offense. (laughs) So I have a theory about why Don Regan did that, and it has to do with sometimes you get really cranky if you don't stay hydrated. And that's why I want to talk to you about hydrant. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around every day chronically dehydrated? We are suffering, suffering needlessly from frequent headaches energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you can mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the essential four electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. Help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan 
and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck, a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T. Drink Hydrant, like fire hydrant. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O, for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO. So, but you haven't talked about Al Haig, right? So Al Haig, Reagan gets shot. How many days, how many weeks into the presidency? Not long. It was in late March of 1981. Right. So... Seven Three weeks months, or something yeah. like that, and um, um, and he basically says, "I'm in charge here," right? Which is uh, frowned upon in a democracy with a chain of command and all. And incorrect constitutionally. Yes, there's that too. Um, uh, how does he figure into these into the rivalries in the Reagan administration, or is he just sort of an afterthought that gets bowled over by? everybody else. Well, first of all, that's just a great scene in the Situation Room where they're sitting around and talking about what to do. And Al Haig is told not to go and say anything at the podium. And instead, he runs up the stairs to the press briefing room and he says, I'm in charge here, even though he's warned not to do it. Another great scene from that is that David Gergen, who served in four different administrations and comes up frequently in Fight House, kept excusing himself from the room. And one of his enemies suspected that he was going to leak to the press. And in fact, his name was Professor Leakey in the, <laughs> in the Reagan administration. So he was taking some sort of leak. We were not sure exactly which kind he was taking when he would excuse himself. But uh, but but Haig actually doesn't serve very long right. in the Reagan administration. He's, he's Secretary of State for a relatively brief period. And in that time, Baker and Deaver, who's the deputy chief of staff, can't stand him. They try to keep him off motorcades, off Air Force One, and they just in general try to keep him away from the president, which frustrates Haig to no end. And he complains about the guerrillas in the White House are out to get him. So Mike Deaver, 42 years old, deputy chief of staff, dresses up in a guerrilla costume <laughs> and parades around the White House making fun of Haig. Perhaps the single best story that I came up with in the White House. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, I believe you were the one to tell me this some 27 years ago or something like that, that you learned from maybe it was in the, written up in the New Republic that one of Dick Darman's uh, inter-office tactics was he would always leave the light in his office on and leave his jacket on the back of his chair so it looked like he was still working but had just left the desk for a minute. Um, and I think about that pretty much every single time I would leave my jacket on my chair um, and go home for the day. Um, there was a lot of intrigue in the first Bush administration, um, which is kind of weird because Papa Bush was actually a, seemed like a pretty good manager and he had James Baker around who we know was a great manager. But So what were the dysfunctions that led to the sort of unpleasantness? Well, Baker was the Secretary of State by this point. Yeah. And uh, and I argue in Fight House that the foreign policy operation of the first Bush t term, the first Bush administration, was actually pretty good. Yeah. And Baker true. was part of that. But the domestic policy shop was a mess. And Dick Darman was a big part of it. Dick Darman was brilliant. 
uh, he was hardworking. Sixteen hundred on his SATs, I recall. Yes, and he used to brag about that, uh, which annoyed people. Uh, He was manipulative, uh, thin-skinned, and uh, a great story about him being thin-skinned is in the Reagan administration. He is a deputy to Baker. But he does not like anyone pointing out that he's subservient to anyone because he's Dick Darman. And at the second inaugural, they give out license plates to the senior aides. And Baker, uh, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Darman gets a license plate that has the words Baker Aid on it, (laughs) A-I-D-E. And the whole senior staff erupts in laughter because they get the joke. But Darman's so mad that he actually crumples up this license plate. (laughs) (laughs) Um. But, all right, so correct me if I'm wrong. I seem to recall that when Darman kept bragging about getting 1,600 on the SATs, that Sununu went and took the test to show that he could get 1,600 on the SATs, or does I have that wrong? The, the thing about Sununu is he used to brag about his IQ, yeah. and Darman would brag about his SAT score. Uh-huh. And both of them annoyed everybody with that. And the, the two of them, this is one of the reasons why the domestic policy operation was such a mess in the Bush 41 administration, is they would sit at opposite ends of a long table in the senior staff meetings, and Darman would be at one side, Sununu would be at the other, and the two of them would preside, and if anybody came up with anything, any thoughts that were contrary to what they thought, the two of them would berate that person and humiliate them, so much so that the process of being attacked and humiliated like this was known as being Darmanized. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a sin in many states. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so this raises an interesting question. So Darman is kind of successful in getting... Bush, first Bush, to go back on his read my lips, no new taxes pledge, right? Um, although Sununu, I think to this day, feels like he was screwed on that by the Democrats and all of these various things. And I remember a very senior political figure who I will not name here, say, he used to joke that um, that Sununu, you know, so I guess the Democrats promised a certain amount of cut, uh, spending cuts to go with the tax hike. And um, and they betrayed him. And this guy says, and there's not a shoeshine guy between New York and Washington, D.C. that Sununu hasn't explained this to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was actually funny. The first time that I was ever in the West Wing of the White House was with our former boss, Ben Wattenberg, uh-huh. when he went to go talk to him about his, his book that he was working on, The First Universal Nation, that I worked on with him. And he met with the senior staff in a room just outside the White House mess. And at one point, we were kind of milling about before the meeting started, and Ben spotted out of the corner of his eye Dick Darman and Bill Crystal walking out of the senior staff meeting. And he moved faster than I ever saw him move in his <laughs> life to intercept the two of them and have two minutes of conversation with them. Interesting. Um, so all right, so, but the, the Darman thing and the breaking of the pledge, no new taxes and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, arguably is what cost HW re-election, though I don't. I don't know. You know, I mean, like people say that and it's become conventional wisdom, but um, let's assume it's true. It kind of raises this larger question, which I kind of wonder as I was looking through the book and maybe you address it and I missed it someplace. Um, How much of serious policy, right? Not eh, little political maneuvers, that kind of stuff. How much serious policy is the result of a of someone, of not the best policy emerging, but the best political player within the White House winning an internal struggle, right? I mean, the, the nice theory, you have this continuum between total dysfunction and total groupthink, right? Um, and there's some happy medium somewhere in the middle. I get that. We believe in competition. We believe that, you know, if you have vigorous and robust debate, 
about things that you're more likely to yield better policy solutions. But not always, right? I mean, anybody who's been to high school understands that sometimes the popular kid has the worst argument but still gets named prom king or whatever, right? Or wins the debate. Um, uh, how often does the ability of being a good bureaucratic inside player and uh, performer for the, pre- the audience of one, which is the president, how much? How often does that win over a better policy um, outcome? Because the person, let's say, for the sake of argument, that Marshall was right. I, Tevi Troy, is not <laughs> going to agree to that. You know, <laughs> simply, well, let's put it this way: Let's say Marshall won the argument because Truman liked him so much and revered him so much, which is a plausible possibility, right? Um, uh, how often can you think of any times where the wrong policy came about? I mean, I assume you're against. Going back on the no new taxes pledge, right? Um, is that because Darman had the better argument, or he was just the better inside player? How often do we get wrong policies based upon better skill at playing the inside game? Right. Well, first of all, there's some vagueness to the, the notion of wrong policy. Right? It's not always clear. Not on this podcast. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I would say that Darman fought hard against the no new taxes pledge when it came out. He was very angry when it came out, and he actually said something. And I think I have it in, in Fight House that. When Bush said, read my lips, he said, you can't read an organ. An organ is not something. Lips are an organ. You don't read an organ. Uh, so Lips are an organ? I don't even okay. know. I don't know what he was thinking, but he, you know, he got that good SAT score. But uh, so, so Darman then fights against it inside the White House, and he has this opportunity when they have this big summit on the budget and what to do with the Democrats. And the, the, at the, the time, remember, the Democrats had controlled Congress for decades, and there was no question or thought in anybody's mind that the Republicans might take over. They did actually take over in the next four years or so in the Gingrich Revolution, but nobody imagined that to be. So you had to deal with the reality of a Democratic Congress and a Democratic Congress for as long as the eye could foresee. And Darman and I think Sununu also really weighed in on him. And I remember actually I was at AEI at the time and Herb Stein was an economist who'd served under Nixon and after Bush violates the No New Taxes Pledge, and everybody at AI was just irate, Herb Stein wrote a note praising Bush and said, thank him for going back on the No, <laughs> no New Taxes Pledge, which always made me wonder about Herb Stein. <laughs> yeah, well, Stein was a little squishy. I mean, I, I, sweet man. Very smart. Very smart. Very smart yeah. Um, I was at the annual dinner when uh, Alan Greenspan gave the irrational. You were there, too, right? Yeah, I remember yeah. you telling me the story. Yeah, the irrational exuberance talk for for the whippersnappers in the room or in the audience in, was it 95, 96, somewhere in there? Right. Um, Alan Greenspan, then still the head of the Fed during a huge boom in the stock market, said he he basically vomited up a string of random words and phrases, the likes of which a room full of very smart people, most people had no idea what he was saying. I mean, just no idea. It might as well have been Esperanto. And... After, but somewhere in the mix of the this enormous bowl of word salad, um, he had the phrase "irrational exuberance," and afterwards Herb Stein was like, "Yep, he thinks the markets are too high, and the markets are going to go crashing down tomorrow." And he was exactly right. I mean, it was really interesting. Um, so yeah, I remember you told me that story at the time, and I wished I had sold my stocks then. <laughs> <laughs> but you see my point, right? I mean, like it is possible that um, the the you know, let's say for the sake of argument, John Bolton, who's a legendarily good inside player until fairly recently, <laughs> um, uh, uh, let's assume that he's and I'm I, 
I'm not saying he is. I, you know, I have my disagreements, but that's not my point. This is just a hypothetical. Let's say he just wants to bomb the crap out of Belize. Um, it's the wrong policy, right? But it's possible he could convince a president or you know or win the argument internally. Um, does the the does the growth of the executive branch and the office of the executive office of the president make it possible that you end up getting policies that you wouldn't otherwise get because it becomes sort of this management problem of, of you know, of the internal bureaucracy ends up steering the president in a certain direction? I mean, you know this better than I do. There are many, many administrations where the president gets managed up. Right. Um, and, and that process can't always be optimal. Right. Sometimes it has to be suboptimal. Um, um, are there can you think of other times where a triumphant faction in a White House rivalry actually pushed the country in the wrong direction on something? I'm just trying to like. So, you know. so I could say that, that a triumphant faction can push the country in a different direction because the president doesn't get full information. So in the Obama administration, there was a fight about the stimulus package. And Christina Romer, who was the head of CEA, the Council of Economic Advisors, wanted to argue for a bigger stimulus package. And Larry Summers, who was the chief economic advisor, didn't include her option in the memo. Now, uh-huh. as you know, I do not want a bigger stimulus package. I thought we spent too much mo- money on that stimulus package. But that option was not presented to the president because of Larry Summers big fitting, big footing the issue. Uh-huh. All right. So you have um, um, you kind of have some kind words for second administrations and you don't think the conventional wisdom that the second term is always as bad as um, conventional wisdom. Why don't you make your case for that? So part of it is because uh, you worked in one. <laughs> I mean, I, no, I, I worked in two terms. I know, but Bush, you had a better job. I, in the I second had better term. jobs in the in the second term. So I don't think it's the case that all the second term people are less talented than the first term people. Uh-huh. That said, there have been a number of second administrations where things did not go as well, and obviously Nixon with Watergate and Reagan with Iran Contra. But it is not always and, and Clinton with impeachment. But it's not always the case uh-huh. that a second term is worse, and it doesn't necessarily have to be worse, and it is not worse because you have less talented people. You may not have the people who came with the president to begin with in town because these jobs are grueling and you don't last forever. But I'm not willing to say that a second term, by definition, is going to be worse because it's just later in the the cycle. Yeah, so, okay, the reason I bring it up is I want to disagree with you. Let's put aside better or worse personnel kind of thing, right? Um, At the cabinet level, first of all, you stipulated uh, Nixon, Reagan... Clinton, which were the three two-term presidencies prior to W, right? And I would argue that things went worse for W, too, in the second administration. Maybe not in your shop, right? No, no, they but, did. I, I was yeah. in charge of Katrina to some degree, so. Yeah. Um, how'd that go, Mrs. Lincoln? Yeah, it was not good. <laughs> um, and so there was Katrina. There were, which, look, it was an exogenous thing. I mean, I, I mean, unless you're Spike Lee, who thinks that you personally blew up the levees, um, you know, it wasn't you can't blame the hurricane on on the administration, but the Iraq war would did not go swimmingly. The financial crisis did not go swimmingly. So there were exogenous events that happened in part because I just think the longer you're in your office, the more you're due for a black swan. Right. But we can put that aside because that's metaphysical. Um, part of the problem is, is that you have 
cabinet secretaries because of the fun- just merely because of the function of the lame duck nature, right? Who are thinking about their post presidency careers, maybe their own presidency or whatever, and the ability to get everybody to stay mission focused, particularly among the major political players, attenuates greatly. And um, I can't think of. I mean, you're you know you're right that Bill Clinton in some ways, got his act together better in the second administration. But he also was impeached, right? And um, uh, he also... Right, for something that had nothing to do with the fact that it was a second administration. It was just the fact that everybody knew he had the zipper problem and he got busted in the second term. Although the government, right. if were it not for the government shutdown, he might never have encountered Monica Lewinsky. Right, and, and we wouldn't have <laughs> known about it, but he still was engaging in that kind of behavior. Sure, so. sure. Uh, right. and, and then Obama, fish got a f- right. fish got a swim. Birds got a fly. <laughs> in some ways, Obama's second term was better than his first term in terms of how he figured out how to manage the staff. He didn't cycle through as many chiefs of staff. Uh, he found a chief of staff, Tom Donilon, who figured out how to handle Valerie Jarrett, and they got along well. So I, again, it's not that there haven't been some prominent, complete screw ups in the second term. I just don't think it's a straight line extrapolation to say a second term is going to be worse than a first term. Okay, so. Um, I mentioned before that you don't – I mean, you, you talk about Trump in the introduction and then at the end, but one of the points you make about why it's difficult to talk about Trump here is that you really only find out about the juicy stuff about the rivalries after the administration's over and you get the oral histories and all of these kinds of things. Um, but I'm just going to lay down a marker for when you're back on here. Uh, I think for all of the reasons we've discussed and several others, a second Trump term will be markedly different and worse than a first Trump term along these lines. But um, uh, I want to sort of switch gears for a second. We don't have to talk about punditry stuff about Bill Barr and all of that. But I I was ranting at my wife about this last night. She likes being ranted at. Yeah, no, she's great (laughs) about it. The fair Jessica. Um, And I saw John Meacham on MSNBC and I was watching for reasons having to do with original sin, and um, and I kind of like Meacham. I mean, he's kind of milk toasty, but I think he's a decent guy and not a, not a terrible historian or anything like kind of that. And he was basically saying that President Trump, because of this bar stuff, this is the most lawless, anti-constitutional president or imperial president since Andrew Jackson. And you hear versions of this all the time. Right now there's this letter with a thousand people trying to get Barr to resign and that 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 they're that Barr is guilty of giving the president all of this permission structure to do lawless anti constitutional things. And I'm not one to normally rush to the defense of the president or rush to whataboutist arguments. But it drives me crazy that there is this utter sort of blind spot for things that Woodrow Wilson did, who's history's greatest monster, um, and also that FDR did. I mean, the idea that FDR, you know, like, Meacham went on this long rant about how, I'm sorry, this mellifluous diatribe about how, you know, a lot of our custom, a lot of our, you know, rules here are really just customs and norms that are established by precedent. And George Washington, if he hadn't stepped down after his second term, he could have been president for life. But we established this norm and blah, blah, blah. And now the pre- President Trump is doing all his violence in these norms. Completely skips over the fact that FDR was president for life, right? <laughs> he had four terms, well, four and a, three and a half terms because he died in office. But, you know, ran for president four times, 
completely blowing up the Washington precedent, blowing up that democratic norm. You've written a bunch about historian about about presidents. What is with this sort of, you know, obsession with just sort of letting FDR and to a lesser extent Woodrow Wilson completely off the hook for this kind of stuff? Well, I wouldn't forget about John F. Kennedy and the way his administration pursued Jimmy Hoffa, Mm -hmm. uh, some of the wiretapping that took place in Kennedy, also uh, wiretapping of Martin Luther King, uh, some of the actions that Lyndon Johnson took. So there's clearly this notion of presidents who who can skirt the line. And obviously, you can't avoid the talk of Nixon as well. Uh, I, I like the fact that you brought up Wilson. You know, I have a kind of Jonah Goldbergometer for the books I write because <laughs> Jonah wants to know in each book how negative I am in Woodrow Wilson. That's and right. In, in my second book on presidents and pop culture, it was a pretty neutral book where I just mentioned what each president's interests were, and I mentioned that Woodrow Wilson liked the theater without really blasting him, and Jonah said his biggest pl- problem with that book was I was not negative enough against Woodrow Wilson. But then in my third book, I corrected because I talked about how awful Wilson was in dealing with the 1918 flu, and so I think I, w- I salvaged myself in the, in the Gold- Goldbergometer for that book. This book talks less about Wilson because I don't cover that period, but really high on the lawlessness scale, and... Um, uh, Stephen Knott just wrote a book uh, about uh, the decline of the American presidency where he just talks in hair-raising terms about how awful Nil- Wilson was on being a racist. And, uh, and you would love that chapter. In fact, I uh-huh. think I tweeted at you about that book. But um, it's, it's called The Lost Soul of the American Presidency. And this book really lays out just how awful Wilson was on the, on the lawlessness front and other fronts. Oh, I should take a look at it. Um, wasn't part of my criticism that you didn't, get into the birth of a nation thing which was you know oh i totally got into birth of okay, a nation okay so I, I can't remember what it was no but, it was just but i'm sure you were just right. too you were too soft on Wilson. yeah i was too soft on him okay. but but i made up for it in shall we make the president okay fair enough um um but so what do you think this was a common refrain in the goldberg household at a given time in my life um that not to say that what nixon did was right but that part what really got what part of what Nixon's real problem was was that he the game the music stopped in the game of musical chairs and he got caught doing stuff that Johnson Kennedy FDR all did from taping people um, to skullduggery and whatnot and it was really that he was a victim of the improving cultural norms of society that what was once tolerated or assumed was going on was no longer accepted do you think that's fair well, that, that's part of it, but also more media attention. I think the press felt like they got burned by knowing about Kennedy's dalliances and not writing about it. Uh-huh. And there was a sense after that, and especially uh, starting with Vietnam but continuing under Nixon, is that we're going to dig under a rock and we're going to see everything that the president does and we're going to report on it. And then you saw in Nixon that reporters could become superstars and household words. Right household names by going after the president and really digging into it in, in the form of Woodward and Bernstein. So I think this, the it's not just the cultural norms, but the media norms of how you look at a presidency really changed in the 60s and 70s and all those kind of non-two-term disastrous presidents that we had in that period. You know, actually, let me get back to the two-term thing. You know, we, we talk about all these presidents had problematic second terms, but here you had a bunch of presidents between uh, from the end of Eisenhower until Reagan, no president actually served two terms. And they had some pretty problematic periods. I mean, the Carter administration was problematic. We talked about the Ford administration's problems. Uh, Johnson obviously had his issues with, with the Vietnam War and chose not to run for re-election when he could have in 68. So uh, first-term presidencies have their issues as well. 
Yeah, well, that, that's fair. Um, but I, I, I stand by the proposition that typically things don't improve in the second term. Um, despite sometimes lucking out and getting people like Tevi Troy to work in better positions in the second <laughs> term. All right, so I want to do just a little sort of memory lane stuff um, because, again, um, Tevi and I go way back. Um, and uh, uh, for just as, as this, n- this Nick guy um, is the new Jack Butler, for a long time I was the new Tevi Troy at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, it bugged you no end. <laughs> it bugged me to no end. I will, I will grant that. Um, um, so uh, what are your um, – how how, I don't even know what to ask here because it sounds so hokey. I mean um, I feel like we should have like do you recognize this voice from behind a curtain and Vin Canato come out or something like that. Um, no, th- there's actually something I'd mention on this. is I was at the AI dinner a couple of years ago with one of – my brothers, and uh, he looked at it and he said, you know, where are the Irving Crystals and the Michael Novaks of, of today? Because we, we were there. It was really an astounding time of yeah. very high-level talent. And I made the case that the people who were at AEI at the time, which included you and John Bolton and Arthur Brooks, I would say had higher name recognition among the broader American public, in large part because of TV and because of Twitter, than even the greats of Crystal and Kirkpatrick and Wattenberg did today. So there's actually an interesting question of comparing F. Uh, AI of yore and some of the great intellectual endeavors that took place there and some of the great books with the people of today who arguably are having more of an impact on the politics and the culture. I appreciate that. I think I'm just going to have to sort of disagree on on behalf of my own. As you know, I come from a long line of Jews that think compliments are bad luck. And uh, I'm no Irving Crystal. I'm no Michael Novak. I think we both agree on that. But but do you have more prominence than Ben Wattenberg, the guy who we work for? I I think you have higher name recognition. I think I probably do. I think I probably do. And, Um, and, you know, Ben wasn't actually that much older than we are now when we started working. Yeah, that that I think about a lot and that depresses the hell out (laughs) of me. And um, at one point, at some point, I would love to do the tales of what it was like to work for Ben episode of this um, because it was interesting. Could, could we have Doug and Mazzetti and all Yeah, no, we'd like to get great. the whole crew together and tell the stories. I just, I, I feel like there's a certain amount, uh, even if you sort of like played it uh, even-handed, there's a certain amount of ingratitude about like, you know, doing tell-all stuff about some of the craziness from all of that. Um, I, I gotta say, I have nothing but gratitude for Ben. I learned so much from him about how to do this whole kind of pundit writing, TV stuff, getting involved in government. Ben worked in government. In fact, when I worked at AI in 92, one of the reasons I left was I saw that there was no career path at AI for people like you and me, something you yeah. saw as well. And I said, I love these guys. I love what Irving Crystal does and Ben Wattenberg does and Norm Ornstein. How can I be more like them? What can I do? Let's assume there's some kind of comparability on the innate talent front, although obviously they were all, they were all brilliant. What do they have that I, as a 22-year-old, do not have? And I identified three things. Number one was some kind of advanced degree, so I went to get a PhD at University of Texas that we talked about earlier. Number two was some kind of senior government service. Ben obviously mm-hmm. worked in the White House. Norm had a senior job in Congress. And then the third 
was some kind of well-received book or article. And I said, those are the things you have to do. And I went out and I wrote my first book based on my dissertation on intellectuals in the American presidency. I obviously served in government. 13 years was longer than I anticipated serving in government. But I felt like it set me up well for writing about this stuff afterwards. And before I went into government, as you know, I didn't write that much. I, I, I wouldn't say I had writer's block, but I, I didn't feel like I knew what to write. Mm-hmm. And since I left government, I've never felt like I was wanting for something to write because there's so much to talk about. And I, I actually have some knowledge and expertise from having served there. Yeah. So it's funny. Um, I think I've talked about this on this this podcast before, but, um, you know, I was a screw up in high school. Um, the only college I could get into was an all women's college. Um, and I kind of fell over backwards in my job into the job at AEI, um, in part because during the job interview, um, which you were in the room, Ben asked me, what's the last book I read? And I lied and I said the end of history and the last man by Francis Fukuyama. I'd read the article that it was based on and I was like 17 pages into the book. And Ben said, um, summarize it, summarize what's that book about? <laughs> and, um, and I did it. I did an okay job, I think, cause I knew what the book was about. You know, it's, it's not really the end of history. It's the end of how we measure, you know, the advance of societies in the state and yada, yada, yada. Democracy is the best. Ben liked hearing democracy is the best. And, and that was partly, and then also your recommendation, uh, how I got that job. And Over a noxious other candidate who would have drifted Ben in a very leftward and problematic direction. Yes, it's always <laughs> best to be better than the competition. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, but those first couple of years where I was friends with you, and these other uh, guys who people don't know the names of um, who worked for people like Bork and um, Charles Murray and all the rest, that really was sort of kind of my grad school time, right, where all I knew from about like Leo Strauss in college was that he was the devil and um, and that if you opened up the forbidden books of knowledge that that were associated with Leo Strauss, your soul would shrivel and you would um, – have uh, hooves for feet, and um, and so lo- those first couple of years were some of the m- best years of my life in terms of filling in all the gaps and stuff. And you were a huge part about all of that because you were um, even more of a nerd about this kind of stuff than I became. And um, and it's funny I've, I've talked about this with a few people, Jonathan Adler, and a few other people. There are a handful of us. You were one. Adler's another, uh, Continetti a little bit, where like the George Nash book on the history of intellectual conservatism um, was kind of like our, um, you know, the, the, the overstreet guide to comic books kind of thing where um, that's the wrong analogy. I'm trying to think of the right book, but it's like the book of origins, right? And, it's like, and it turns out that there are certain kinds of dorky people, and I include myself in that mix, who love origin stories and love sort of going back, pulling on the thread backwards to find out how people became who they are and where they came from and all that kind of stuff. And I got a lot of that. I think I got a lot of that from comic books and all that kind of stuff. But I also got a lot of it from you and because I could use you as a resource and you liked telling me, you sort of held paper on all of these people at AI and all of their enemies and all of the rest. And it was a sort of my gateway drug into a lot of the intellectual history stuff that we're both now so interested in. 
Yeah, it's totally true. I, I do like that notion of how I did have the book of great comic book origins growing up, and then you know, the Nash book was definitely served that same purpose yeah. for me and for people like us. But I really, I, I've got to call BS a little bit about the way you told the Ben Wattenberg story, because I know okay. you don't like compliments, but you gave yourself short shrift. Uh -huh. The way I tell the story is not that Jonah lied, but he <laughs> was asked what book he was reading. He said this book by Fukuyama. Ben asked him to summarize it. He gave an incredibly pitch-perfect summary of what the book was about, the arguments about it, the fights about it. And as we walked out of the room, Jonah said to me, I only got up to pa about page eight of that book, but I think I don't need to read any more. <laughs> and I said at that moment, first of all, this guy is great, but second of all, I don't want to play poker with this guy because I was very impressed with that. And you were 22 years old. Is so, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, so, I, I think you gave, I know you don't like compliments, but you gave yourself short shrift I, on, that, I, on that great story. I appreciate it. Um, so you actually wrote a book about think tanks as well, right? No. Well, intellectuals in the present. But I wrote a, an article for, for National Affairs on think tanks. Oh, that's that what I'm thinking of. I'm perhaps sorry. more attention than any article I've ever written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I actually heard this great story. It kind of described the origin of think tanks and how they were evolving and how they were evolving and, and how some problems were happening at Heritage with the development of Heritage Action. And I heard tell from someone who's at Heritage that there were scholars at Heritage who were holding the article in their hands as they were walking and stumbling into walls because <laughs> they were so <laughs> engrossed in it. <laughs> So what do you think the, uh, and, and be careful here, um, what do you think the future of think tanks is? I mean, do you think it's still, um, do you think the, the golden era of 65 to 85 or whatever it was of the AI model and the Brookings model, is that all gone or going by the wayside? The model is clearly changing and evolving. There are about 1,800 think tanks in the U.S. now, and about 400 in Washington. That was not the case in the golden era. Right. So there's a dilution of the term think tank. And then you also have problems of think tanks being perhaps a little too beholden to donors and maybe a little too caught up in the, in the partisan wars. But I still think think tanks can serve a very valuable role in terms of giving scholars, especially on the right, a home, the university is not a welcome place for people like us. I got a PhD at the University of Texas, but I also knew that there was no pathway for me to get a tenure-track job at a university for a variety of reasons, not least of which among that I am a conservative. In fact, somebody said to me when I was in graduate school, he kind of leaned forward and said to me, is it true you've written for National Review? <laughs> and this this particular person, when I said yes, I was expecting a fight, but he said he, he whispered in my ear, I'm a conservative too, don't tell anybody. Yeah. But that indicates what a stultifying environment it is at a modern graduate school, and certainly among academia, you just don't, if you're outed, if you out yourself, as I did by writing for National Review, no offense to your former employer, but if you out yourself in that way, you're not gonna get a job in that in environment. And so think tanks are a very useful place to find smart, nerdy conservatives who have things to say about public policy and how it should run, and they, they need a home. And I think think tanks are important in that regard. But is it possible, I mean, I generally agree, but is it possible that because conservatives are given essentially, so this is one of these things, we've talked about this a lot in the past, but like when the left complains about Fox News or the role of think tanks and all that kind of stuff, I'm always like, okay, I'll trade you. We get Harvard, Yale, <laughs> Cornell, the rest New of the York Times, New York Times, Washington Post, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN, and you can have Fox and you can have the American Enterprise Institute <laughs> building and you can have the Heritage building and we'll call it a day, right? And there's this 
partly I think it's part of this tribal negative partisanship thing that we always have this tendency to think the other side won because it has these unfair advantages. And so you can find you find that like the left has been trying to mimic right wing institutions for a very long time um, because they think like it must it must be the the machinery or the bricks and mortar that give the right win lets the right win these political arguments. So remember in the early two thousands there was all this stuff about how liberal talk radio is going to destroy is going to do what Rush did, but for the left, and then it turned out that liberal talk radio didn't work in part because. The only reason why right-wing talk radio worked was it was oppositional to the mainstream culture. Liberal talk radio, first of all, is NPR, and second of all, is not oppositional it's to the mainstream, the elite culture. It's ratifying of the elite culture. And and then you had, oh, it must be the think tanks, and they created the Center for American Progress, and J Street, and all these kinds of things. And it, the, constant, the left keeps constantly catching the, the car and thinking... Okay, now we're in the driver's seat, and it turns out like no, it's actually still the arguments. Um, um, but it now seems like the right is doing a lot of that. You know, the right wants, you know, we need to have our own Hollywood movies. We need to do have our own this kind of stuff because that's why we're losing. Is that we're right's not... been talking about that for thirty years? No, I know it has, and we've had these arguments about this. But um, um, but but look, let, let me make a case for the think tank, and at least the think tank in, in the golden era. Which is, it, I think, it was the crucible of the of argument that strengthened those think tanks. And because people, they may have come from academia or at least to graduate school, and they knew that their position wasn't the dominant position, they had to argue for what they believed. And then they would come to think tanks. And you remember the economists' table at AAI? You would have people who were pro free trade and anti free yep. trade. You would have people pro immigration, anti immigration. And you could ho- house those people at the same think tank. You allowed different beliefs. The Center for American Progress doesn't allow that. The, the, tr- the truth is, Heritage doesn't really allow it either. They are both think tanks where you have to put everything through an approval process and only things that are approved by the overlords of the think tank come out of that place. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't good research that comes from those Mm -hmm. places on on occasion, but I think the interesting thing that made AI and Manhattan and Hudson successful and interesting is that you could have different perspectives. And I'm not sure that's as free as it once was, but that potential of a think tank, I think, is one of its strengths. No, I'll just say in AI's defense, we got people on both sides of all sorts of issues, you know, and I think AI has managed to maintain its viability in the Trump era in ways um, that I didn't think were necessarily going to be possible. You know, we've had, you know, our friend Scott Gottlieb went into the administration and and, and Kevin Hassett and these guys, uh, John Bolton, just leave that there. Um, and uh, and then you have other people like me or they were very critical of the administration. And, and unlikely to go in. <laughs> Very unlikely going. Although, you know, I have not talked about this publicly. At the beginning of the Trump administration, I was reached out to be the communications director for a major cabinet agency. And I will not name it because I like the cabinet secretary. But I explained to the headhunter person who called me about this that this would be a very, very, very bad idea. <laughs> and I gave some other names for it. But I've always sort of held it in check in case I needed to sort of say, you know, hey, look, they wanted to hire me. Um which I guess I just blew. Anyway, uh, uh, you got to play the card sometime. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but no, but I, 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 I take your point. I mean, I think there are a lot of great people at Heritage. I still think it does good stuff. But there is a all oars pulling in one direction thing to it, which was always somewhat baked in because they saw themselves as much more of a pressuring Congress on 
specific legislation think tank, which is a different model with AI. Which and famously in opposition to AI because right. AI, would remember that famous story about the supersonic transport where AI puts out this paper on the issue after the vote takes place in Congress. Right. And these congressional aides, including Ed Fulner, were irate. Why didn't you put this out before when it would have done some good? And that's when they got the idea to start another think tank that would weigh in on these key issues right. of the day before the votes happen. Yeah. So this is not criticism of heritage. It's just a different model, right? Different model. And... Um, um, AI always sort of saw itself as a university without students, and because um, the universities with students wouldn't allow those people to teach. <laughs> right, right. All right. Um, do we have any other um, grand stories from the old days? Before, I mean, I think we have to wait a little while longer before we do the full unloading of all of the great uh, uh, tales, because. Uh, we still have to feed our families, but <laughs> um, uh, um, but anything else that you want to get out there about the old days that you think is worth? I, I would just say that back in the day, AI did have a ping pong ta- table, yes. and there were some Titanic bouts that took place there. And I remember Dinesh D'Souza was an excellent ping pong player, and Leon Cass was also surprisingly good. And that kind of floppy hair he had would be swooping around while he would be hitting these these topspin forehands. So uh, it, it was it was a fun time where there was a lot of intellectual combat taking place, but also ping pong combat. Yeah, so we played ping pong an enormous amount, an enormous perhaps amount. a little too much. Oh, perhaps <laughs> a little too much. Um, but this is like one of these things. I was talking about this with uh, Sarah Isger, my colleague here at the Dispatch, um, last week. Who wrote week. an excellent review of Fight House. Thank you, Sarah. Um, where um, in the old days, pre-internet, right? Like on the Hill, they used to have wheels up parties. Like my wife used to talk about it when she worked for a senator. And the second they knew the plane had taken off, they knew the boss couldn't call in for, especially since she worked for Alaska, an Alaskan senator for a long time. And there were times like when we worked for Wattenberg, Wattenberg was traveling, you know, like we were, as long as we got the things we were supposed to do done, we had free time and we played a good deal of ping pong. T- you know, there's still a ping pong table at AI, by the way. And, um, but, you know, Dinesh, who was of a different frame of mind back then, I just want to be clear about that. <laughs> I have my disagreements with Dinesh these days, but he did nothing to dispel the stereotype that young Asian males are good at ping pong. Because <laughs> he was very, very good. He was quite good. And good at tennis, too, by the way. I played yeah. with him. So. Um, yeah, and I remember telling people back then, my old fr- I told my friends from college and stuff, yeah, I got this great job. There's free soda and there's a ping pong table. Um, <laughs> and they thought you were in Silicon Valley, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, Silicon Valley wasn't even a thing back then. Anyway, we could do this for a while. Uh, Tevi Troy, thanks so much for coming on. The book is Fight House. Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Um, I hope I'll be able to get you back on. Absolutely. Love it. Thank you. All right. So Tevi, uh, or as I've called him for over a quarter century, Tripod. Um, it's a long, very boyish joke about his endowment. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, has left the building, left the studio, and um, uh We've gotten some feedback from people that they miss the painfully nerdy and dysfunctional banter with uh, Jack Butler. So I figured we would let um, Renfield, I mean Nick, out of his box. <laughs> and uh, and since he is, it's not quite the direct line of descent of the veterans of working for Wattenberg, but um, it's sort of like the Sunni-Shia split in, you know, like the descendants of Ali versus the other guy, whatever. Um, 
since I'm the AEI guy now and he's a research assistant um, and he's joined the great chain of being of my previous research assistants, uh, we'll drag you in. Uh, what'd you think of all that? Um, I thought it was great. I mean, there's something to be said for, I think, the, uh, the idea that there's um, staffers who have some bureaucratic skills that don't necessarily provide the best argument or come in with their own ideological things that are not aligned with maybe what the president wants. Um, that, I wonder if he digs into that a little bit more. But I'm sort of curious about that, which is why I kind of want to read it now. I mean, he sold the book very well. That's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, Tevi is always on message when he um, has a book out. He, uh, he, he, he takes it seriously. He knows. I mean, I'm, I'm very bad about this. Like, my publisher, I think, is furious at me that uh, Suicide of the West came out in paperback like three weeks ago, mm. and I have not been hawking it constantly, mm. um, which I'm supposed to do. And, and by the way, if people want to sort of, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can get it going on Amazon where there's a frequently bought together icon on Amazon of Fight House and Suicide of the West. <laughs> that would be great. Um, it would make my publisher very happy, and it would make me very happy. Um, I wonder about that often. Is there actually a boost of sales when you have something come out in paperback again? Do is there a second, like a, a revivification of the sales again? Or yeah, I mean, some people wait for books to come out in paperback, mm. um, and uh, sometimes there's new material. Like there's a new preface to mine. Um, yeah. Um, I was inclined to pick more fights in it, but we decided not to because <laughs> uh, uh, there were an enormous number of. Uh, asinine responses to Suicide of the West, I would right. say, and um, I particularly, and it's, I, I still think it's hilarious that a book called Suicide of the West, among the chief criticisms of it, is that it was too cheery and too optimistic. Right. You know, I, I could have called it "Take a Bath with a Toaster," <laughs> um, and, uh, um, but anyway, we don't, I'm not here to plug Suicide of the West. Um, I assume you know of these people that. <laughs> We were referencing the Michael Novaks and the Irving Crystals and uh, all of these I, people. I have like an Irving Crystal like altar, basically. He's, the, I mean, one of my like um, great early interests in politics was Irving Crystal, basically. Um, yeah, no, Irving. So it's funny when I got that job that we were talking about. Um, I agreed to be an unpaid intern until Tevi left, which was like in March or first of April of '92. And help work on this um, big three-day conference on popular culture that we did back mm. then. And we had all these, I, th I would argue, way too many old white, like, Straussian dudes like mm. um, on it who were not exactly experts in popular culture. Um, uh, unless you mean, like, you know, 1950s ballroom dancing kind of right. thing. And But... Um, um. Uh, that was one of the first times I heard Irving Crystal talk, mm. and he was on a panel, and I was like, "Holy crap! This is like my dad." <laughs> um, and uh, um, more, you know, sort of more fluent in sort of the intellectual eggheadery stuff than my dad was, um, but so similar in that sort of homespun. You know, Irving and my dad were both these people who. Would make the kind. Of, I mean, I've heard Irving say this a bunch of times. He says, "You know, it turns out that most of social science and most of neoconservatism is just there to ultimately prove that the stuff your grandmother told you about life was true." Mm. And um, uh, 
Um, and I remember Irving saying, um, he was defending censorship at the time and on this panel and he says, you know, he does this, I am so nostalgic. You know, when I was a kid, you know, there'd be a book and um, come out and be in the, you know, the window at Scribner's downtown or Barnes and Noble, whatever, and I would say, banned in Boston. Mm -hmm. And because it was banned in Boston, you'd be more likely to buy it in New York. And, you know, no one was hurt by this and all that kind of stuff. And that was when I got first introduced to, you know, these arguments about, um, about censorship stuff, which I still find pretty persuasive. But mm. I think Tevi's basically right about the, the stuff about sort of the name ID of people at AEI today versus back then. But, you know, with the exception of Yuval, very few of us, I mean, I think Yuval really kind of is sort of, could be this generation's Irving Crystal. Mm. Um, he doesn't have the same sort of awesome life experience yeah. that Irving had, but um, which I think shaped some of it, you know. Um, but Yuval's just, you know, I mean, he's, he's a Jewish Yoda. Right, so. right, right. Yeah, no, that was my most intimidating job interview for AI. It was like Yuval, who was like the kindest, nicest person to me in the whole process. And I was still just like, he came into the room and he was just like, well, hello. And yeah. I was no. like, oh, well, that's terrifying. Um, yeah, you get the presence of kind of being around a Yoda-like master with him. But I, I kind of wanted to, I was curious about how he felt about that, not just in terms of like name recognition of the people at think tanks now, but also like um, to what degree is the purpose of a think tank now just to like write white papers and present them to Congress and how much of that old school model of you're going to stick a bunch of smart people in a room and maybe get them to write an anthology and it sells a couple thousand copies to some very smart people and then it becomes very influential because that seems to be much more the old school model whereas I think now it definitely seems to be the case that so much of like what AI does is presenting stuff to Congress, stuff like that. And there's definitely a role for that, but it seems a little less purely academic in that sense. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, mm. um, AI does very really well in terms of testimony before Congress and all of that kind of stuff. And I do think that there is, you know, this is one of the problems. I mean, this is much more of a Yuval kind of point. But you know, I, I had a drink with a woman after I gave a speech a couple months ago in Vegas, this woman who used to work for a prominent congressman and she left to go work for this trade association that I spoke to and um, she said, you know, part of the problem is, is that there are very few members of the House now who actually have policy shops. Instead, they have co communication shops and they're more interested in messaging than actually coming up with policies or, leg or serious legislation that could pass. Instead, they're trying to come up with either stuff to fend off a primary opponent or stuff that sounds really good on a cable news hit or a talk radio hit, but not actually putting the mental energy into coming up with you know, the stuff that they're supposed to do, which is write laws. And so there is a mm -hmm. role for outside institutions to fill that void in a way that maybe there wasn't a while back. But um, there's, you know, there's always been this, this tension and I don't think it's simply a conservative tension. I think it's, it's, it's sort of in the world of egghead, you know, sort of intellectual affairs um, between the sort of inside game of influencing elites and the outside game of influencing public opinion. Um, something we didn't, Tevi and I didn't talk about was the public interest, which was this huge mm -hmm. influence on both of us. Uh, some of our closest friends were 
editors there in one capacity or another. Um, and, um, uh, it was this journal that was a quarterly, it was put out by that Irving Crystal was the editor in chief of, and hugely influential, massively influential magazine. And Irving had a rule. He said, if we have more than 7,000 readers, we're doing something wrong. Mm, <laughs> um, that's an inside game perspective, right. right? And it reflects a little bit what we're trying to do with the dispatch is that we're, because we're rejecting the clickbait model, because we're re rejecting the sort of maximize traffic at all costs model, we're more interested in quality readers than quantity of readers. Don't get us wrong. We would love to have tens of millions of readers. That would be very good um, uh, for putting my daughter through college and all sorts of <laughs> other things. But, uh, you know, our editorial and our business strategy is to focus on um, getting good uh, readers who we don't waste their time with a lot of silly emotional stuff. And this is one of the things that has sort of been a frustration for us on the business side is finding somebody on the business side who knows how to sell that kind of product, right. both on the podcast side and also on the newsletter side, and that we know we have a huge readership and listenership on, say, The Hill, right? Mm -hmm. There are, if you watch cable TV in Washington, D.C., watch Morning Joe or Fox and Friends or any of these things, you'll see ads for specific about specific legislation in Congress that you will not see in Chicago mm. or New York right. or L.A. because the audience is basically about 5,000 people right. and on K Street and on the Hill and in think tanks and, and whatever. And in some ways, that's our audience. Yeah. I mean, um, I know there are like six senators who listen to this podcast. Um, I know there are a couple dozen congressmen who have listened to it and lots of their staffers listen to it mm. and figuring out how to pitch not to a broad universal audience, but to narrow cast to that audience is, is going to be part of our model without, at the same time, we're just not that interested in, in the advertising model to begin with. Sure, because if you had that audience of like 10 million people, you would have Tevi on to make the opposite argument. You would have to sit here and be like, no, uh, I think Omarosa was a truly wonderful <laughs> principled White House staffer, right? Yeah, well, Tev, Tev for, for various reasons, wanted to avoid talking about the, the Trump White House, and I, I think fair enough. Um, yeah. um, and we do a lot of that on this podcast. <laughs> so, um, All right. So as, in terms of uh, action items, uh, uh, again, paywall is about to go up. Please, if you believe in what we're doing, um, if, you could if you could be a paid subscriber, we'd really appreciate it. Um, if you'd like to advertise on The Remnant or on one of our other podcasts, please let us know. Um, we've finally upgraded the AI that runs the uh, Jonah Remnant uh, Twitter feed for this podcast. That's at Jonah Remnant. Um, we had a bit of a problem because it had kind of run amok and was trying to, um, you know, uh, take over sort of various life support systems and hospitals and whatnot. And so we had to reboot it. Um, and uh, we'll be back on here soon. Thanks to uh, my friend, Tevi Troy. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Nicholas Pompella and our, our um, uh, podcast producer, um, Caleb Parker. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Not per minute. <laughs>